The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, it seems like every day there are more alarming revelations about the mess that was left behind when Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX crypto empire collapsed. And as the bankruptcy case gets underway, there are plenty of questions swirling around about whether all of the contagion has yet to play out. And how much permanent damage has been done to the industry? We'll get into it with the CEO of a Canadian company that's at the intersection of crypto and traditional capital market investors. But first, Vildana, I have to ask, are you watching the World Cup? I'm not. I'm being a very, very diligent, hardworking person. When I'm at my desk, I'm definitely not watching soccer. I don't believe that. Unlike you. Unlike you. Well, I actually took a half day on Monday to actually watch the U.S. game at the pub. and uh, the, No, you didn't. Bittersweet. Well, that and to do my Thanksgiving shopping. So I, two, two for one. A very bittersweet okay. tie. But I bring it up because two of my craziest things are World Cup related. So a little tease for the end of the show there. Yeah. No, that's a good tease. I wonder what it could be. I'm trying to think of all the headlines. I'll, I'll give you a hint that they go all the way back to the 1980s, which oh no, coincidentally okay. is the last time I've actually played soccer. So uh, it tells, <laughs> tells you a little bit, a little bit about my uh, skills in that game. It's possible that we can bring in our guest from this week into this conversation as well. I want to bring in Stefan Ulet. He's the chief executive officer of FRNT Financial. Stefan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm not a soccer star, but I will be watching. With all the mess going on right now, it's a, a welcome, uh, a welcome positive that we can have on in the background. A nice little distraction. Yeah, you're calling in from a very special place, or it's special at least uh, <laughs> today <laughs> in the crypto world, which is the Bahamas. And I want to start with that. I want to ask you to tell us a bit about why you're there, what you're thinking about, and what that trip has been like. Yeah, no, I, I'm in the Bahamas. I've been here uh, basically since I, I, I arrived. Uh, not this Sunday, the Sunday before, you know, our organization has a presence down here. We have a lot of partners and clients and just people that are our friends that are down here. So uh, I came I came here to be close to them, try to be on this uh, boots on the ground and really get a feel of of, of how everyone was thinking uh, about the situation and how it was unfolding. It, it is really ugly down here. You know, this is uh, this was a real point of excitement for the Bahamas. The fact that they had become such a such a crypto hub. You know, this is a this is a country that very much kind of missed out on that. Something that's not very well known about the Caribbean is that in the early 90s, when the tech boom was exploding, a lot of the dot com enterprises, including firms like Amazon, uh, were also having issues with kind of the U.S. financial system and they were slow and the willingness to to bring them on board. And so they came down to the Caribbean and the Caribbean basically said, you know, if that you know, if the U.S. banks don't want to work with you, we don't want to work with you either. 
And obviously, if they made a different decision at that time, they could have had a very different experience over the last, you know, 20, 25 years. So this was seen as something they didn't really want to miss out on. And they really, you know, moved quickly and they brought in a lot of the top firms. Uh, and to see that all unravel as quickly as it did is is extremely disappointing to everyone involved, not not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, the FTX was positioning themselves as a banking alternative, particularly in regions where they operated like the Bahamas. So there's even more horror stories of people treating FTX like bank-like infrastructure and therefore leaving, you know, a significant amount of their assets just kind of laid on FTX, which are now on, you know, uh, you know, now they can't get access to just like everybody else. So there's a lot of different kind of angles to this story that just get really ugly. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, you know, the Bahamas is bearing some of the brunt of it right now. And I should have been super, super clear. Um, I should have mentioned this earlier. You're there because FTX is headquartered there, right? Yeah, just just to give a little color on that. I mean, FTX basically, when China kind of changed their strategy about foreign relations in general, FTX was launched in Hong Kong. And they very quickly kind of turned around and used Bahamas as a new jurisdiction and came down here. And they brought their whole organization to live here, not only to kind of be regulated out of here, but there was, you know, tons of FTX employees that moved down here. They all started to, you know, to, to rent, to invest in property. They bought a lot of office space and all that. So they really quickly, within about a year, you know, 15 months, got very ingrained in the fabric uh, of the country. And you know, it was one of the biggest one of the biggest companies operating out of, out of here and brought a lot of other companies that wanted to kind of be in the FTX sphere and ecosystem yeah. with them. Well, Stefan, as far as uh, I understand, uh, your firm FRNT didn't have any direct exposure to, to FTX. Is, is that's correct? That's correct. We didn't have any direct exposure to FTX. In addition to that, you know, the we did see some red flags in FTX. I mean, you know, red flags and counterparty risk aren't as much of an issue in, in, a, in, a, in a period like 2021. I mean, you know, in 2021, I would imagine that Sam, even if he did have a hole that he was covering up, would have been able to raise capital just, you know, at, at, at a snap of his fingers. Uh, as 2022, the credit cycle turned over, you know, those opportunities went away for even someone like Sam. So at that point, you know, you start to say to yourself, OK, well, how do I feel about these counterparties and, you know, the risks that they're taking, the, even like the ethos of the way that they operate? And so from my perspective, and this has started to come out kind of as, as the veil has been lifted on FTX, I thought they'd been extremely aggressive on the regulatory side. They're, you know, very associated with the, the U.S. A lot of the principals are U.S. persons. They use U.S. banking system. You know, when I'd seen what happened to BitMEX, where essentially the DOJ claimed jurisdiction over them and it was, you know, really aggressive, I thought that that was also a similar risk to FTX, that the U.S. regulators were going to try to claim jurisdiction and essentially say, they hadn't been abiding by U.S. regulations. Now, that's not that bad from a customer standpoint, because in the BISMEX case, the platform wasn't impacted at all. They really just came after the founders. So that wasn't FTX has was a fiat on ramp, which BITMEX was not. And so, you know, I did think that there was a potential that assets would be, you know, held up for a while. But ultimately, I felt as though the, the creditors were going to would just have to deal with that for a little while and would get resolved. The second thing that I was really concerned with with FTX, which is definitely a part of, of what actually has transpired, was they grew so quickly. But I mean, the reality is, is that in crypto, there are really unique security risks that you have. The accounting is also very unique. There aren't as many services that are willing to support you with things like accounting. So these are kind of limitations to growth that when you just look at the FTX timeline and how fast they moved, you had to think that they were playing a little fast and loose with things like security and accounting, right? And, you know, we happen to just with our, 
you know, our, our presence down here, I, I've come to the Bahamas a lot. You know, we also were quite well aware of just kind of how they were operating their security. And it was in ways that, you know, I, we wouldn't feel comfortable with. So I was, I, I was definitely thinking that there was a potential that they'd wake up one day and then, you know, so there, wouldn't be, there would be money missing from whether it was a hack or just accounting mistakes, et cetera. Did I, you know, the, the last piece of the puzzle was that Alameda was very well known to be seeking leverage through different crypto participants over the last nine months. And I mean, that, you know, made its way to our door, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the last nine months has not been a good trading environment for cryptocurrency. It's been, you know, there was counterparty risk scares following the uh, Luna and Celsius, and then kind of moving into the summer, opportunity really went away. The market was very quiet. So, you know, when there was a few firms that were looking for leverage and almost all of them ultimately announced that they had taken a big loss. So it's like, okay, you know, this was something that Celsius was doing. So you go, okay, this has been a bit of a, a telltale sign of, of financial issues with an organization. And, you know, given all the, the interconnectivity between Alameda and FTX, you start to say, okay, well, I mean, I really hope that this isn't, is, is that there isn't customer assets that have gone into the mix here. But from what transpired, I would never have anticipated that it was this bad. I mean, there, there was, I mean, just every kind of financial malfeasance that you could imagine it seems to have occurred here. And that was beyond even what I thought was possible for sure. Right, right. And, you know, we should point out still no uh, criminal charges against anyone. Uh, who knows if they're coming? But as of now, uh, you know, I'm not sure if anyone is 100 percent sure if it's actual, you know, criminal intent or just incompetence or what. But we'll we'll, uh, we'll I'm sure not going to be the person who's going to say that either. Unfortunately, just with the way that the media is and it's no one's fault is that everyone is afraid to make those determinations, which yeah. definitely makes it seem that that Sam's getting a little bit of softball uh, behavior in the media. Right. Because. I'm, I'm also not going to stand here and say, like, it was this or it was that, but it's certainly, it's very hard to imagine what else it could have been. So it's, I, I'm not exactly sure why charges haven't been levied yet. I think a lot of people are confused about that. But obviously, this is a bit of a pro-SAM news cycle until something like that does happen, which a lot of people are getting very upset about because they think it's relatively black and white. Right. And just bef before we delve uh, deeper into this, can you actually just tell us a bit more about your company, like what you guys do and lay out for our listeners what you do? Um, you're headquartered in Canada, right? So just tell us a bit more of that background so that we have a sense of FRNT as we're discussing. Yeah, for sure. Um, basically, we are an institutional service provider within cryptocurrency. We refer to ourselves as an institutional capital markets and advisory platform focused on digital assets and web-based finance. And ultimately, what that means is that we try to uh, offer a similar service suite that that uh, you know that firms would experience from something like an investment bank uh, to uh, emerging from crypto. And so we have several trading, which is what I refer to as capital markets and advisory business lines. And in, in trading, we we are uh, what I think we have some very interesting structured products that are institutionally focused that that focus on some of the you know very interesting alpha trades in the space, which have persisted over time, such as you know access to basis, but creating a synthetic layer on top of the crypto ecosystem that is regulated and allows people to interact without touching crypto directly. A lot of different commodities and asset classes, it's inconvenient to deal in the underlying, like the oil market. You know, people don't, when they do an oil trade, generalists don't hold physical barrels of crude and store it. Uh, you know, they trade synthetic exposure in most cases. So we've built what we think is the world's kind of most sophisticated synthetic structured products platform uh, targeted to institutions. 
We have deliverable service lines where we have, you know, OTC trading technology and we have treasury management technology that we allow different organizations to implement if they want to trade large blocks of crypto or earn yields on crypto. And we have a bit of a different way of doing that than, than has been, that was done in the, last, uh, in the last year or so. Then in addition to that, we have the advisory business, which is uh, we do general advisory for traditional firms that are looking to create some kind of crypto product on their side or enter crypto or just looking for some advice. We do merchant banking like services where we take we know where we look at crypto companies and and help them you know sell themselves or you know get financing. And we think we bring to the table you know real expertise in cryptocurrency, whereas the traditional investment banks that are doing that kind of activity, in a lot of cases, they don't know crypto well enough to give the strategic advice that maybe these companies are looking for. They really just kind of fulfill the agency function. We, we think we fit very nicely into there. We also have an asset management license, which allows us to you know, work with large asset managers if they want to build out their own crypto portfolios. And really just we find ourselves to be extremely well positioned for what we think will ultimately be a lot of institutions entering the space. You know, these, these down market cycles impact that, but we, we ultimately continue to believe in our thesis. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you that, Stefan. I mean, how much damage has been done to sort of the the enthusiasm uh, among institutional investors to, to crypto after this FTX fiasco? I mean, I, I would assume that there's been some real sort of second guessing and, and perhaps, you know, uh, clients pulling back on what were more aggressive plans previous. What's kind of the mood among among clients after all this? Yeah, I mean, you're entirely right. You know, this has definitely impacted the mood of clients. There's definitely a lot of institutional clients that are going to kill all of their crypto plans. Absolutely. But I will say, you know, our, our businesses were launched in the 2017-2018 market cycle. There is absolutely more interest from institutions in crypto now than there was in 2018. I mean, in 2018, when the market rolled over, institutions basically said, OK, well, that thing went away. See you later. Not, don't need to worry about that. You saw really aggressive moves to pull out, such as something like the CBOE killing their Bitcoin future. I don't know that, but I would imagine that it costs about as much to kill a Bitcoin future as it does to just leave it. So, you know, there is a real kind of dissociation with the space, which you're also seeing right now. But you then you are also seeing other other organizations that are viewing this as an opportunity. You have, in, you know, well-known independent investment banks like Moelis that announced that they were going to be doing merchant banking style activities in the space. And this is post Luna and Celsius. Man Group came out last week and said that they were launching a hedge fund. There are a certain amount of institutional investors that are saying, OK, uh, this space was run by a bunch of people who didn't really know what they're doing. None of this is Bitcoin's fault. Right. You know, maybe you could argue that the financial services around Bitcoin have been extremely, extremely impacted. And I've got I, I think I have a bunch of uh, thesis as to why the, that has happened so so aggressively. But if you viewed Bitcoin as a potentially you know growing an alternate financial system or, or crypto as a whole developing an alternate financial system, I mean, just because someone someone operating an exchange did so in a way that was either, as you said, incompetent or as also as 
you know, as, as many people think fraudulent. I mean, it doesn't change your thesis on the space. You just think, okay, these people didn't do it right. We can do it better. So yeah. it, it's a it's a mix. It's definitely the sentiment is horrible, but there are some at least this time that are that are sticking with it. Is there more contagion to come? Do you think? I mean, have all the sort of shoes drop that that are bound to drop from FTX, or do you, do you think there's more sort of uh, bad news ahead in, in the space? Well, I think that the Genesis news is really, really bad news. And that itself could create knock on effects that, uh, you know, in firms that, you know, haven't quite played out yet. Uh, I do think that there's going to be more bad news amongst kind of smaller, almost definitely for amongst kind of midsize, smaller firms to be more bad news because, you know, everyone's kind of jumping all over firms right now that haven't kind of given their, you know, their I'm safe, I'm not safe thing. But the reality is, is that those are a little bit, those are complicated determinations to make in some cases. Maybe you're a firm that has a lot of investments with different, you know, funds and you have to wait till they communicate with you, you know, fully. And if someone's trying to figure their situation out and is a little slow, then you don't feel comfortable giving your full communication yet in terms of what you're doing because you only want to do it once. Right. So there there's definitely going to be more bankruptcies. I feel as though, you know, just given the market pricing, the market price, what you see with Genesis essentially saying that there's a very strong chance that they will declare bankruptcy and seeing relatively little market impact. I think that a lot of the kind of midsize to large bankruptcies have been somewhat priced in. I think if another major exchange platform was also found to be insolvent, that would create a whole bunch of other issues. But so far, so good uh, on that front. But definitely, everyone's pulling back their, their capital to what they believe to be the safest corners of whatever they have access to and are just waiting to see what happens. So uh, you know, I think that even if we don't get any major bankruptcies for the next month or so, people are still going to wait and see, you know, until the new year, at least until they start kind of redeploying in a significant way. OK, I have a difficult question for you, which is that there's just so much interconnectedness within the space. Can you actually just lay out like maybe the big picture view lay out for us? how it is that there are knock-on effects where you have, you know, the collapse of FTX and what it means for these other lenders or other exchanges. Like, how is it that that happened? Like, what is it about the crypto space that allowed that to to sort of happen? Well, I would, I would also say that this is not unique to crypto, right? Like, there's, there's right. you know, the interconnectedness of, of financial markets is is there everywhere. And in fact, a lot of what, a lot of what I think caused the honest failures, let's say, like the honest failures is really just people bringing things like unsecured lending into the crypto space like well before this market's ready for something like that. And, uh, you know, the biggest move from Wall Street employees we've seen into the crypto space, I think a lot of people just pulled out their old Wall Street playbook and started applying it to crypto. And some of the stuff the market's ready for and some of the stuff the market isn't. So I think a large part of kind of the, like I said, the honest failures were just allowing business practices like unsecured lending that just don't work right now. I mean, this is an asset class where if you own five assets in your portfolio, they could go to zero within a couple of days, right? It's just, and that's just not something that you typically see at scale in traditional finance like you do in crypto. But what's happening, you know, the, the actual kind of knock-on operational effects are, I mean, it's relatively simple. It's, it's say I, you know, if you were a fund that was involved in the FTX bankruptcy and you were using them as a massive counterparty, Okay. Well, first of all, you may just have so much of your assets tied up on that platform and written it down to zero that you just wind down your operation altogether, right? Because you said, okay, I lost 80% of my assets, we're writing them all down to zero on FTX. You know, what seems apparent now is we're going to go through a long bankruptcy that's probably going to end up being a zero. I'll give my, client, my investors back the little money that's left 
and call it a day. So that's kind of like the most vanilla unwind. Then you get into situations where, say you had debt, you were, you were using leverage in your, in your fund. Well, now you, you may not even have the opportunity to give back money to equity holders because debt holders would stand in advance of your equity holders. And so, you know, your debt holders say, we're taking whatever you have left and your equity holders are wiped out. So that's another version of a bankruptcy. The Genesis situation to me is still quite complicated in terms of what really happened there. I think that, you know, clearly they were extremely impacted by the Three Arrows bankruptcy. They released that they had 600 some odd million of exposure to them. And I mean, Three Arrows has been accused of kind of, you know, taking taking an asset and, and, and depositing as collateral of multiple platforms, which would, if that was true, that would be fraud. So, you know, Genesis may, the Genesis collapse may also have been, have been the subject of other frauds as well. It could have been, fraud could have played a role into that. So I think, you know, the, the two kind of things that are, the, there's two components that are, that are leading to these collapses. One is over leverage and poor risk management, which I think is very evident in the miners, right? The miners, a lot of them don't seem to have modeled Bitcoin price below 30,000 for a persistently long time at all, where their business would effectively evaporate, which has happened. You know, you have definitely things that smell a lot like fraud going on in the space, which is, which is another component. And so, and then you just have this cascading effect of, you know, if I lend to this miner and they go out of business, do I go out of business? I can't pay my debts, et cetera. And it just, it, then it becomes quite a traditional financial you know, like a contagion like environment. Yeah. I wonder how the space will have changed once all the dust settles from this. You know, obviously, I think the issue of an exchange being so closely tied to a trading firm is, is, is a big deal. Uh, there's a lot of talk about how exchanges should have to uh, sort of show proof of, of what reserves they have, that sort of thing. Where, like, where do you see the, the industry going uh, from the centralized exchange uh, perspective, especially after all of this? I mean, I, I'm guessing it's going to look a lot different than what it did prior. Yeah, there's been a lot of kind of, I would say, jumping the gun on talking about, oh, well, this means that DeFi is the way to go. Decentralized exchange is the way to go. Okay. A little bit early for the decentralized exchange crowd to be doing a victory lap after about 50% of assets were hacked out of that ecosystem last year. And, you know, they had their own collapses and all of that. So de- decentralized exchanges in a lot of ways are, are very new technology. And I, would, and I would argue, you know, aren't ready to be the core of any kind of financial ecosystem, maybe in the future. But right now, that's a little early. So, you know, it, unless everyone's going to start passing around ledgers like hardware wallets and stuff like that there is some kind of an centralized exchange infrastructure that needs to persist so that the so that people can continue to transact in bitcoin and whatever the cryptocurrencies they're interested in there's a very strong argument to say that regulation will be important and i am one of the people that you know that that also thinks that regulation would help because the reality is is that there's a lot of participants in the bitcoin ecosystem that really can't do their own due diligence or don't feel comfortable doing their own due diligence it doesn't matter how many financial risk proof of reserves or balance sheets you show in front of them, they're never going to understand whether or not the, the exchange should be worked with or not. And for those people to have kind of a regulated avenue in crypto, uh, like within crypto to participate in the space where they can feel comfortable that the same controls are there versus what they're familiar with in the other financial ecosystem, I think will help the adoption of, of Bitcoin uh, and other cryptocurrencies. But that can't be just it. Regulation is not a panacea in, the, in this context. They're, the regulators you know, can't play whack-a-mole with every single platform that just pops up. I mean, this is a relatively new paradigm. You've got an environment where anybody can start their own exchange overnight. This is a new phenomenon. This isn't something that was around in the 80s. You couldn't just launch an exchange 
very little cost overnight and get into business, right? So this is how a free market educates itself. If you look at the, if you look at the, if you look at this evolution of this kind of new financial system as a hundred year cycle, right? It doesn't make sense that there would be a two year period where no one really understood the elements of counterparty risk because they're used to dealing with a completely fully regulated ecosystem and they kind of have to learn, right? You know, hopefully the next time, you know, uh, uh, an SPF comes around, everyone doesn't just like just take him at his word no matter what. And there's a little bit more criti- critical critical discussion around whether or not this person should be as trusted as they are. And, you know, I think proof of reserves is a good step. It doesn't fully create the, uh, the, what you need because you need some visibility into, into exchange liabilities as well. You know, just because an exchange has 50 billion, if their liabilities are 100, it doesn't, you know, you still have an issue there. So those transparency structures, I think, are going to evolve. But then, the, then people need to go to those platforms that are being more transparent. People have to choose that they want that. If, if we get into another market cycle where, you know, Coinbase and, you know, all these other firms that have committed to transparency aren't getting the assets because they don't have the, the newest DeFi yield farming thing, then it's hard to really sympathize, right? It's, it's the typical investor has to learn. And then what happens with, with why institutions kind of get hit or market makers is really what institutions are in this context is that they kind of have to just go where retail is. I mean, you can say, I'm not going to use FTX at all, but when it has all the volume there, I mean, you're highly incentivized to to have to, you know, to, that's your business, that you get involved in that, right? So, you know, retail needs to needs to understand that there is no, you know, there's no there's no one that's going to save you in this market. There's no one, you know, it's your you're very limited recourse if something goes wrong and you really need to do your due diligence. And if one platform's transparent and another platform's not, then... You got to go with a transparent one or else you run this huge risk. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Can I ask you what in reality regulation would look like? Because obviously we're talking big picture, but like what specifically would be regulated? And I want to ask this question of you specifically because you have, you know, what things are like in Canada, you know, what things are like in the U.S. and obviously in the Bahamas and other places as well. Yeah. So, I mean, our platform is relatively straightforward to regulate, to be honest. Like we're basically taking kind of derivative structures that have like derivative structures that do fit in the existing regulatory framework. The problem with a lot of this regulatory discussion is that they're trying to take like an equity framework and apply it to you know cryptocurrency or take commodity framework and apply it to cryptocurrency. And it just it's 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 it, it's a struggle to kind of to to fit these these round holes into square pegs. Right. For typically for the for retail exchanges. And in addition to that, you know, if the if the retail traders, if you limit the activities that are available on one exchange. Right then, you know, it incentivizes people to go offshore. And then, you know, that's been a criticism of the regulatory environment in the U.S. that they didn't move fast enough and it was forced people offshore. Now, I don't buy that entirely. You know, everyone could have traded on Coinbase, which looks to be fine. They just wanted to get more access to leverage, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, you, I think that you have to look at this, this space with, with fresh eyes. Unfortunately, you probably have to rewrite a regulatory framework from the ground up that takes into account cryptocurrency. It's a very difficult task. You know, there's not a lot of regulators that even themselves would count themselves experts in cryptocurrency. But if we want a regulatory framework that really applies to what we're doing here, I mean, that kind of thing needs to happen. You know, the, the, really where the, 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 the regulators have focused on is like, oh, we don't want this product. Or we don't want that product. We don't want, you know, I think that that is, that's just, it's silly. Like we look at the issue we had here. Who cares what products they are? You need to make sure that the exchanges have the assets that they claim to. Like those are the key controls, right? So the, all this discussion around like, oh, there's too much leverage. Retail's going to blow themselves up. It's like, well, if they, if they traded on this platform and they blew themselves up, if they took too, tri- too much leverage, I can get my head around that. If they traded on a platform because, and it was a huge fraud and the people didn't have the assets, you know, that's a whole different story. And that's where regulators should come in, right? Yeah. I wanted to rewind a little bit, uh, Stefan, and talk about that notion of yield farming that you brought up, you know, uh, mm-hmm. whether, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, locking up your tokens at a decentralized finance platform or even, you know, depositing them with um, a high yield account at, say, Gemini or, or one of these centralized counterparties. Where do you see that whole space going? You know, so many people criticize these high yields as too good to be true. I mean, or, are they truly too good to be true or is there a way to do this that's... Um... Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a nuanced question and you're entirely right. There are ways to actually get yields in crypto and then there are ways that are completely fictitious. And yeah. top of the list in fictitious yields is yield farming. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of yield farming supporters left, <laughs> to be honest, with, with what's happened. You know, this was a dynamic that we saw kind of emerge very, like very from the ground up. You know, the whole decentralized exchange model was considered a bit of an afterthought in cryptocurrency, an interesting experiment for the future. And it all really changed in the summer of 2020. Uh, I believe that the first platform that did this was Compound Finance, where they launched a comp token where you would deposit Bitcoin, ETH, you know, stablecoin, other mature assets and receive comp token. And because we are in the middle of a bull market, I don't want to beat up on comp token. They seem like relative, you know, I mean, I haven't had any indication they're not honest operators, but all these yield farming platforms, you deposit Bitcoin and they'd start paying you in their token, which they invented like weeks ago and is now trading for whatever reason, because we're in the middle of an insane crypto market at a multi-billion dollar valuation. So yes, your yields are high in this token, that has a valuation that's unsustainable, right? So, and when the market sells off, okay, then all of a sudden, if okay, you got a token worth of a project worth two billion. If 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 the token collapses and the market cap of, of it is now fifty million, what's your yield now? It's probably pretty bad, right? And in addition to the fact that there's all these other issues that have come up with DeFi because it's an experimental uh, situation, such as regulatory risk, hack risk, et cetera. If you take all of that and you add it all together, the yields are probably negative, right? And so so the whole yield farming dynamic needs, I, I don't think it has much of a, has much of a future. It was re- and it really kind of pushed the DeFi exchanges and platforms you know, the, the argument for DeFi exchange, decentralized exchanges is, is self-custody in a lot of cases, which is, which is, a, which is you know, as we've seen, uh, definitely a, a value-add use case. There's other elements uh, that, you know, that I would say that the DeFi ecosystem needs to kind of figure out. But anyways, and then, and then moving into the centralized lending, which was the other element that you, that you discussed. I mean, that should be, that should be fine. I mean, centralized lending itself is a risk management exercise, right? It's saying, hey, I'm lending you, you know, the, a safe form of lending, right, would be if someone lent me 
over collateralized with US dollars because they wanted to borrow Bitcoin or some other asset and you're over collateralized and because I or I lend you Bitcoin over collateralized to get US dollars because I don't want to lose my upside on Bitcoin but I need US dollars for right now, okay? That kind of stuff can be risk managed, right? And, and, and if you have kind of segregated accounts that you have access to, you can, you can manage that stuff. There are other real ways to get yield, such as people like, you know, in peer-to-peer lending markets on exchanges like Bitfinex. Those things have held up amazing. If, if, if you believe Bitfinex is a solid counterparty, which, which I do, then the peer-to-peer lending markets have worked perfectly. And that's really just people either borrowing stablecoin because they want to go margin long or borrowing crypto because they want to go short. And that's really what's created yields like historically. It's, it's all based off this kind of borrow, lend, lend, margin long, short dynamic. That's why you can get yields in option markets. That's the same thing that you can get yield trading basis. I mean, those are all very real opportunities that unfortunately are getting a little bit noised out right now because of these lending dynamics that have exploded. And it's made our pitch a little bit tougher for our clients because we think those are great trades they should be involved in, right? So, you know, I think that over time, we'll be able to do the education process again, have this discussion, explain that like, yes, that wasn't a real dynamic, this is, and we'll get back to it. But obviously, it's going to take a little time. Speaking of that, I actually wanted to ask you what specifically your clients are coming to you with. Like, what are they asking of you right now? And maybe you can talk a little bit about what is going on in the market in terms of how much things have scaled back exactly? Yeah, so our clients are coming to us right now in a couple of different uh, different contexts. They're coming to, uh, you know, they're, they're speaking to us a lot about physical crypto trading because there's been a lot of their counterparties that, you know, uh, aren't haven't made it. They can no longer service them, so they're looking for new counterparties. There's also a lot of people that were using FTX to hedge themselves. You know, they're, you know, crypto desks, that need to hold balances so they can facilitate kind of, you know, their their whole all of their activity. And so they don't want to just be long, you know, one asset and have that move with their treasury. So they choose to hedge. You know, miners off are, you know, potentially hedging. It's less of a market right now. But the advisory side is really where we're getting a lot of the interest right now. I mean, there's a lot of people that have projects that are struggling to raise money right now. And we have a really strong network of investors that aren't going anywhere in crypto and are still very well capitalized. So we're trying to make some introductions on that side. There's people that are looking for a general strategic overview from us because they think we have a, we're well positioned in the market to judge, is this business going to work going forward? Is it not? You know, we're trying to uh, lend a hand where we can in some of these various restructurings, which we think we're very well uh, suited to do. And we are, you know, making a lot of progress on that side. Um, we're in a nice position here where, where, where the impact to us has been relatively modest. So, you know, we're not ourselves kind of in a bunker right now. We can have conversations with people and, and go out and try to help them out. And so yeah, I would say that it's, it's really kind of advising the crypto native side and seeing a lot of clients coming to us on the trading side because their prior service providers ha- have gone away. Mm. So for, for like the FTX case, would you, you could possibly work as an advisor to, to one of the debtors or one of the creditors rather? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into the weeds too much on that because there's just a lot going on. Unfortunately, yeah. the situation was messy enough to begin with, and it became messier just with how the whole thing's played out, you know, from, from not halting withdrawals at, at, when they probably should have to not shutting down the exchange when they should have. And now there's money flowing in and out still. But, you know, we think that, uh, you know, we think we have some ideas for you know, how the situation can be managed. Uh, you know, we encourage other institutions to reach out and, and kind of hear ideas. But it is there's a lot of competing interests in this right now. 
And it's, it's very difficult to, even if you do have something really valuable to contribute to, to, to stand out. Um, but, you know, we think, we, we think we'll ultimately we'll, we'll be able to provide some insights uh, on, on how to manage uh, some of the FTX situation in particular. Great. Uh, really appreciate your time, uh, Stefan. Hey, at least, you know, you get to get to a warmer uh, 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 climate there for a little while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> for, for Escape what, Toronto. Yeah. Good time of year, at least, to, to be making uh, making the switch. Well, uh, Vildana, I think it's our time now to get into the craziest things. You got something crazy for us? Sure, Jason, but it's not really about crypto. But this is a Bloomberg headline. Actually, I'm going to pose a question to you, Mike. All right. If I told you that one person's wealth loss for this year exceeds $100 billion, who would you guess it is? Mm, $100 billion. I think I'd guess Elon. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, okay, this was, this was, this was easy, but yeah. <laughs> There's not, the, th- this... not that many with that, with that much to lose, you know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it's a striking Bloomberg headline. It's like 50%. It's pretty close to 50% too, right? So, okay, so he... Um, What's happened is Tesla shares are down, obviously, all the Twitter stuff that's going on, et cetera. He's worth roughly $170 billion right now, but it's down from $340 billion around this time last year. Wow. Yeah. That's a rough year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I think this will be okay. He'll, he'll be fine. Yeah, I think he'll land on his feet. <laughs> Don't you think, Stephanie? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's pretty good, Vildana. $100 billion. Jeez. Puts it in perspective when the rest of us check our 401ks, I guess. I'm going to dip into the alternative asset space here. As I said, I've got two soccer balls, World Cup-oriented soccer balls that are up for auction. One already sold, one's still up for auction. The first is, and I think we talked about this before, Diego Maradona, the great Argentina star of the 80s. He had what's known as the Hand of God The Hand of God, right? Where Mm -hmm. he, he clearly scored a goal in the World Cup uh, quarterfinals, I, I believe it is, with his hand. And they asked him afterwards, uh, did you use your hand? And he said, no, it was the head of Diego Maradona and the hand of God that scored that goal. But uh, a replay clearly shows it was his hand. They're still very sore about this in, in England, I'll, I'll point out. Mm-hmm. And the, I'm sure. The referee who missed the call has, has had, uh, the line judge who missed the call has uh, uh, kind of ruined his life. But the actual referee of the game was able to take home the game ball. They only used one game ball back then, believe it or not. And I think the guy was in his 70s, and he he put it up for auction. So that's one soccer ball, or I'm sorry, football uh, that went up, un-American football that went up for auction. The other one, Vildana, was uh, they're auctioning off all sorts of gifts that were given to the the various uh, mayors of New York over the year. And one included a one-of-a-kind Louis Vuitton soccer ball given to Mayor Giuliani in like 1988 wow. to, to commemorate fancy. the World Cup. Price is precise. I'm going to ask you both. Which one do you think is worth more and what's what do you think it's worth? Okay, I'll go first. It's definitely Hand of God ball. Yeah. And I'm going to go with $2.5 million. $2.5 million. All right. Stefan, what do you think? I, I I'll go with the hand of God ball as well, but I'm going to take the under in this market. I think it's probably I think it's yeah uh, under 2.5 million. I was going to say in the hundred thousands, but let's say a million. Oh my gosh! Can I revise? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can. She always wants to revise. You're not allowed to revise. This might be the closest call we've ever had in a, a game of prices per site 
precise. It's all for two million pounds, so two point four wow. million. So I think we got to give it to Stefan for taking the under on the. Oh, come on! Kind of wins that one for sure. Well done. <laughs> Believe it or not, the Louis Vuitton soccer ball, Valdana, it's only six hundred bucks. That's it. Isn't that crazy? That seems that less than the cheap. price of a Louis Vuitton purse. You could purse, cut, yeah, cut the top of sure. it, and make a purse out of it, and uh, yes. But uh, that, that's arbitrage. A, that's all I got. Stefan, I'm guessing um, you being in the Hamas, I think we have a clue as to what your craziest thing of the week is. Yeah, yeah, no, this FTX situation is the craziest financial situation I could ever imagine. I mean, it was it's not just me that's saying that John Ray, who's who's the court appointed CEO during the bankruptcy proceedings, who did Enron, Nortel. I mean, he's been at the epicenter of everything. He went out of his way in the bankruptcy filings to say that this was the craziest thing he'd ever seen. And honestly, that's an extremely unusual approach. Like usually you stick to facts and it's under and all those things are under uh, under the threat of perjury if you're wrong. And so, like, you know, it's just for someone of his professionalism and stature to come out and say that, I mean, just underscores just what we're dealing with here, uh, unfortunately, for a lot of people. It's it's really mind boggling. And when you read some of these statements in the bankruptcy filings, like you're saying, you know, they they just seem flabbergasted that a company could have been run the way it was. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. So, well, uh, Stefan, we really appreciate your time. We know it's a it's a very busy time for you, a very uh, sort of uh, risky and I'm sure stressful time. So we really appreciate uh, you taking some time out to to explain how you're viewing all this and, and what happens next. Um, and uh, wish you the best of luck. And hopefully we can bring you back someday in uh, happier times. No, I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a little bit of a fog right now. You know, we'll see how the dust settles. But uh, I think that we'll be we'll be back in, you know, the industry will be back in business probably sooner than a lot of people are, are expecting. Right now. All right. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Talk to you later. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time. down has begun from may 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in doha for the carter economic forum powered by bloomberg join heads of state influential ministers and leading ceos to make new connections gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions request your invite for this exclusive event at carter economic forum.com